0: As always, our show is sponsored by Memoria Press. You can find our curriculum at memoriapress.com. Welcome to Classical Etc., a show that dives into the philosophy, culture, and heart of classical education. You're in the studio with Shane Saxon. All right, welcome to another episode of the Classical Etc. podcast. I'm sitting with Paul Schaefer, Dr. Dan Scheffler, and a special new guest, Tom Skullthorpe, who is the math guy. Memory Press. And there's actually a very specific reason I've invited you three down here today. I don't know if you noticed this when you were walking in the room today above the door. And people who don't know Memory Press don't know that we actually have an Attic Greek inscription above the door that says, Let no one ignorant of geometry enter here. But you three
1: can enter. I suppose we can enter. <laughs> <laughs> Of you guys and, and, and for those who don't know where that slogan comes from, it was inscribed above the gate of Plato's Academy. Oh, that's
0: what it was. I thought because, it was our studio. That's my bad. Because
1: <laughs> Plato uh, thought that you had to have a grounding in the rigorous learning and the rigorous style of thinking that geometry taught you before you were really ready for what he was going to teach you in, in his school.
2: I knew that you would know,
0: Dr. Ditcheffler, and I appreciate
2: that. So, I, I, I would like to make it known that on the last podcast you referenced me as being inaccessible and um, I forget the wor- the exact word you used, uh, unrelatable maybe, and yet this podcast you invited me because I will be relatable. Well,
0: that's right. You're relatable because what we're talking about today is math. <laughs> Tom is the math guy. We've brought him in to be the math guy from Hawaii Press to be working on math things. And so that's what the conversation is today. It's math. And a lot of times when you talk about classical education, we've talked about this on the pod before people tend to gravitate to classical Ed who are a word to people mm-hmm. who love books, but as Tom will expound for us, I'm sure that is a it's a bad distinction that it's all a part of classical Ed. So that's where we're headed. But Tom, it's the tradition on, you know, this show because we're just conversing like friends mm. to ask, what are you reading right
3: now? What are you? What are you reading? <laughs> Well, uh, my, uh, my, most of my reading time is dedicated to the scriptures, um, every morning, uh, because I'm a PhD student and I'm studying for, for that. Um, and other than that, I'm reading the wing feather saga with my children at night before bed. Um, not maybe not so classical, but, uh, but the kids are really enjoying it and I am too. Um, it's, it's pretty exciting and, uh, and, and we're having a good time. I
0: like how your PhD is just reading the scriptures. That's your research, just read the scriptures.
3: <laughs> a purist. Yes, I'm also reading a book by Jeffrey Pauls called Figuring Resurrection. Uh, he uh, he argues that Joseph is a death and resurrection figure in mm. the Old Testament. So, I like it. Dr. Shefford, what have you been reading recently?
1: Uh, well, uh, I just went on vacation last week oh. and we have a little tradition, my wife and I, when we go on vacation of hitting like every used bookstore in the city that we go to. So we, we went to every single used book place in St. Louis and I picked up a book uh, on, right off the shelf, uh, Eliade's Myth of the Eternal Return. Um, and it's about this kind of theme throughout a lot of uh, different cultures uh, of a cyclical view of, of history um, and the importance of that. Uh, why it's, his, his view is that people do this because we have a kind of buildup of guilt. And so we need some kind of you know, uh, way of, of putting the burden of these irreversible actions behind us definitively. Uh very fascinating book. I read yeah. it all just in like one go in one afternoon because I was on vacation. Oh I just yeah. Burned through it.
2: Vacation reading. The yeah. best. Oh yeah. <laughs> Paul, what have you been reading recently? I'm still on Don Quixote. Okay. I finished okay. Return of the King the other day, which was wonderful. Um I it's been I, it's been at least well, it's been probably fifteen years since I read it. And I did did not remember the Great Havens chapter being mm-hmm. as moving as it was. So that was, I, I very much enjoyed the end mm-hmm.
0: of that book. Do you also ooh, enjoy the the Shire episode at the end? For those people of us, like in my generation raised on the movies, when you get to the end of Return of the King and mm-hmm. you're actually reading it and you get to the whole Shire episode, it's just like, oh, this is awesome.
2: Well, you feel like... Yeah, like a whole nother I, book. Yeah, it is. <laughs> it is like a whole nother book, but you feel like... Okay, the, the, sorry, spoiler, the ring is destroyed. The, the, you know, they've the, had a 100 years. The, the king has returned. <laughs> and the Titanic sank. <laughs> <laughs> and you, different book. You feel like, um, between those two things, the ring being destroyed and the, and the, uh, and the king has returned, that it, like, we should wrap up really quick, right? Like, it's, it's over. But no, I mean, coming back to the, the scouring of the Shire, it's just, it's a wonderful, it's a wonderful moment because it's, you know, Gandalf tells them, they're like, aren't you coming with? He says, no, I, you've learned. You can do this without me now. And so, you know, and to see them kind of rise to that occasion mm-hmm. is is a beautiful thing that I think most people don't expect because you you expect it to be over. And I'm sitting here going, I got another 100 pages yeah. here to go. Which, mm. But it, they were, they were pro- some of the best pages in the entire trilogy, I think
0: yeah yeah absolutely it kind of turns the focus back to the hobbits kind of where the focus should be as you're reading the trilogy yeah i just finished uh reading weathering heights and it's it's a pretty incredible book um but i've turned to a quick reread of the picture of dorian gray i don't know if any of you have read that book mm-hmm. um but just a, a fascinating interesting novel
1: very interesting
2: novel but hold on hold on i think for our listeners You mentioned Wuthering Heights. You mentioned you couldn't have a real opinion on it until you got to the end. Sure. And I know Tanya and Martin aren't here, but I do feel like for our listeners to do justice, you need to opine.
0: Yeah. So I still think Jane Eyre is the better novel
2: personally. I agree.
0: But I do find Wuthering Heights to be very interesting and I think what it does that many novels don't do well is that it draws you both of the novels are very similar and I think do the same exact thing. They draw you to the very breaking point of asking can love conquer evil Mm -hmm. and over and over again for hundreds of pages the novel says no it can't. Mm -hmm. Cynicism and despair will conquer love and then at the end Ayrton and Young Cathy spoiler (laughs) alert actually do come to love each other and they put aside Mm-hmm. Generational cynicism and destruction, and they love each other, and through it they embrace learning and and beauty, and they escape, you know, the darkness of Wuthering mm-hmm. Heights, and they bring beauty to it, planting a garden in the in the, in the outside mm-hmm. of the of the house, and so I found it to be a beautiful novel in the same way as Jane Eyre. I did think Jane Eyre was just mm-hmm. slightly better, but I I, I like both a lot.
1: That's a good reading of both of those novels. I like that.
0: Thanks, thanks, Doctor Dan. <laughs> so let's turn our attention to math. So Tom. A lot of people in the classical education orbit, like I've said, will come to math or come to classical ed as word people. We had a whole episode on like translating other languages and learning second, you know, secondary languages. You're a language person too. I know that you and I were in a Septuagint Greek class together. That's how we met. Um, and you know, Hebrew. I know you're that kind of person too. But there's a special role for math in classical education. They they can't be
3: separated from each other. Explain why that is. Uh sure. Well, to return to uh, Plato. Um, my understanding is that Plato was a Pythagorean, and the Pythagoreans argued that the whole world is mathematical, mm-hmm. and so uh, it might be helpful to think about math as another language mm-hmm. uh, with which we or with which we use to uh, describe the world that we live in. Mm-hmm. I think that that is the the tradition that we are all striving to uh, to build upon in classical education. Mm-hmm.
1: When when Shane uh, asked the what are you reading question, I could have answered uh just as, as well. Another thing I read on vacation was Eamblicus's Life of Pythagoras, in which he A
0: classic Dr. Scheffler move.
1: It's it's great. Um but and you're you're exactly right. There's a deep kinship between Platonism, the whole Platonic philosophical tradition, and that. Uh, the earlier Pythagoreans. Um, And so, this idea that there's somehow a war between quantitative analytical reasoning Mm. and more humanistic, qualitative, imaginative reasoning. There are differences, of course, but it doesn't have to be antagonistic, right? God gave us both of those sides of our minds Mm. and you really need the one to help the other and vice versa, you're going to have a really hard time uh, thinking through rigorously some of those more humanistic language, literature oriented things. If you're having trouble with that analytical side of your reasoning and vice versa, if, if all you can do is, you know, just the quantitative analytical stuff and you can't relate that to the human condition, you're also going to get a little dried up in your mind.
2: <laughs> uh, <laughs> but just because I like pinning all the all the woes of our era on the Enlightenment. Sure. Um, maybe one of you two could, could pitch it, right? Because we say there, there doesn't have to be this antagonism between mm-hmm. the two, and I don't think there was the antagonism in the ancient right. world, right? And, and throughout so, the middle, medieval world. Right, so where, does it is it coming into the Enlightenment? Is that like the major impulse?
1: I mean, that's I, I'm a history of ideas guy, you know me, and so I'd I, want to be really rigorous about <laughs> exactly where we pin that. But, uh, and I haven't done that research, but it, that does, that is my sense is, is with Descartes, uh, with Leibniz, you start to get that, that transition between kind of a rigorous separation between these two modes of knowing that, which gives geometric certainty and this other stuff that we're going to kind of put in the dustbin of history. Yeah. Ooh. It
3: seems to me that, um, <clears throat> that, uh, Newton, and Leibniz and and uh, the scientific revolution as a whole uh, saw themselves in the uh, in the uh, following in the footsteps of the Pythagoreans and Plato, vice Aristotle, mm-hmm. um, where uh, Aristotelianism had uh, had kind of ruled the day uh, with respect to natural philosophy or science, including math for a couple
2: millenn- hundred millennia. Years, years, yeah, a long time.
3: So, uh, so I think they were getting back to the the world is mathematical. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And out of that came uh, Descartes' uh, algebraic notation and uh, Newton's calculus. Mm-hmm. And what happens
0: there, kind of in layman terms, it seems like,
3: is that you start to divide
0: kind of metaphysical reality from those things which we can observe. And you start to say, only those things that we can demonstrate are true. And they have to be demonstratable to be true and nothing undemonstratable is true, right? And so that, that maybe is what divides Math from something like poetry, right? Because mm. I can't necessarily prove to you that a poem is true, but it is. I can't demonstrate that,
1: at least not in the geometric, and not in a geometric analytical
0: way, at, right? And so it seems like there is a connection there.
3: Yeah, I would. Uh, we could probably root that in the Enlightenment and the idea that uh, that we ought to pursue some kind of objective truth through the sciences and um, through mathematical science in particular.
0: And so how do you think, though, in classical education, we are trying to not necessarily say, okay, because of ways that the analytical sciences were used to critique, you know, a a biblical metaphysic or a Christian worldview, um, what we're actually trying to do is say, no, no, math is created by God. So how does that happen in classical education?
1: Well, I think you know, early on, you teach uh, your your kids basic math facts. Mm. you know, we we start with drilling uh, arithmetic. And so we build, first of all, that foundation of just knowing that these things are true. Mm. And I think that that gives the kids a, a really important, um, I don't want to call it a moral virtue but it's like an intellectual virtue of knowing that certain things are true, that this is objectively two plus three equals five, you know? Um, And then as we move on and they start to add more onto that foundation into the arithmetic or into multiplication, into algebra, into geometry, trigonometry, calculus, they start to have this expanding uh, understanding of this deeply complex, but also highly rigorous uh, and highly dependable system of thought. And they're training their minds to, uh, to to think through that. And I think that that integrates perfectly with a Christian worldview, <laughs> with a, uh, a focus in, in your other subjects on poetry and literature and philosophy and history and all that. Yeah, Paul, that, you, oh, go ahead,
0: Paul, have you seen that bear out in your experience as a teacher and a leader of a school, the relationship between students who excel in math and, and other uh, subjects?
2: Well, I mean, you see, I mean, part of this is we're living in this world in which people like to categorize themselves as word people or math people, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. And so you will see purely because of the effort of the student that they do poorly in language-based studies, but they excel in math, or vice versa, just because they're mm-hmm. like that's not my thing. Mm-hmm. Um, but you you do have also another large contingent of students that just kind of excel in both, mm-hmm. right? Um, and and so, kind of what I have tried to do as much as possible, and you know, it's a project of years and decades, is is to try to help because even even our math teachers and Tom you are one of them and 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 I'm glad you're you're in the position you are now but a lot of math teachers that come to classical schools now are still thinking in this post enlightenment post scientific revolution mentality of this is all, this is the, this is how we know something's true is if it's ma- if we can prove it mathematically or prove it scientifically whereas you know and and so even in a school you tend to get this division purely because we we aren't all trained with this ancient mindset. Um ancient medieval. I'm gonna include medieval then. Um and so that you know it's we we are getting, I think as the classical movement is maturing and growing, we're getting more of that integration. We're getting more of the 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 teacher that can that can walk into a math class and say, this is a liberal art, right? And this is why it's a liberal art but it's still it's still a project of of generations to really fully embody that, I think.
1: when I was a student, uh, I didn't go to a classical school. I went to like a pretty good public high school, you know, and I really gravitated to math uh, and did you know, I went really far in 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 math for my high school um precisely because. That was the one subject that I could find in my school where the teacher was willing to tell me, this is what the truth is, Mm -hmm. and this is how you can know it, and I'm going to give you a definite method for knowing the truth. Whereas in virtually every other subject, including even to some extent sciences, there was this perpetual, well, you know, we don't really know, it's kind of whatever you want to think, you know, and… I was really turned off by that right. as a student because I was like, well, look, if you're the English teacher and you you can't tell me what constitutes a good sentence or a good essay or a good book and how to how to get there. What's the point of this class? What am I what am I even doing? How, how do I even know how to write my essay? So I think some of that categorization that you're talking about of people is, oh, I'm a math guy or I'm a math and science guy is they're really just tr- truth people, <laughs> right? Yeah. They're into truth and that's where they can find it. And so I think we, you know, we can do better, uh,
2: but but in in a a classical school, right. Everybody should be saying, every teacher should be saying I, or in a homeschool, this is what is true. Mm -hmm. Right. Um, and that's, that's one thing I remember Cheryl Lowe used to always say like a progressive school, uh, has is, is one in which they ask you, what the answer is, but they try to hide the answer from you, mm-hmm. you know? And it, whereas in the classical school, we're saying, no, here's, here's what the truth is. And here's the different modes of coming to know it. Right. And that's, that's why I'm going to make, make a plug for my philosophy cl- course. <laughs> I mean, because what it's, I mean, as far as I'm aware, it's the only place in, in our curriculum or in, in most classical schools where we actually talk about what the Pythagoreans thought mm-hmm. and believed and what their influence was on the later philosophers, and so you do start to get this melding of the quantitative with the philosophical. Paul, are you still an
0: advocate of worshiping the number 10? Is that in the course?
2: You know, insofar as um, 10 is a participation in God. Oh, there we go.
0: Yeah. Well, you bring up an important point. <laughs> I think one of the interesting things for people who appreciate classical education and, and philosophy is that math evokes so many interesting metaphysical questions like, you know the, the classic one is Zeno's paradox, which you've probably heard, and that is in order to cross the street, you have to cross halfway um, from point A to point B. However, in order to cross from halfway from point A to point B, you have to cross halfway of halfway to point A. But in order to cross halfway from of halfway of point A to B, you have to cross halfway to halfway to halfway to point A. And so because there's an infinite regress of halfways, it's not actually possible to cross the street.
1: And yet, Not we, even Achilles could complete an infinite number of journeys in a finite time.
0: <laughs> <laughs> there you go. Yeah. And so, you know, you have these paradoxes that that's a mathematical paradox and there's many ways to answer it. But part of the, the difficulty there is just the slipperiness with which we are trying to describe geometrical realities with words. And that's what really math is, right? It's just trying
3: to describe reality with words in a computational system. Well, this is why Newton's calculus was so important because uh, the, the the question is: Is Zeno's paradox a mathematical problem or a physical problem? Mm-hmm. You and I can go outside and cross the street right now and say Zeno's paradox doesn't make any sense, and yet he he makes a good point. and And his point, um, we we can see it concretely in numbers, for instance, as well. Is are ever are any two numbers ever? adjacent to each other right no there's always another number in between it's the same idea Mm -hmm. there we see numbers representing um uh these these uh um, real world problems right um but but what newton's calculus did was it solved zeno's paradox mathematically and brought math into more alignment with the real world as we see it and experience it Mm -hmm. right because let's let's define newton's calculus here which is he, he found a way to um, to measure uh, infinitesimally small distances or times with and find with
1: the sum of an infinite series. Yes,
3: and so that solves problems like being able to cross the street, or you know, the other famous
0: one is the arrow. If an arrow is uh, is being shot, then at any particular point in time it's not moving so how do you judge its velocity so different right. things like this are what calculus solve but these are not just math problems they're, they're metaphysical problems they're yes. language problems mm-hmm. and that's why aristotle's answer you know for for these problems was mathematically dissatisfying um and so it's interesting to try to see
2: how philosophy and math do connect i say mathematically unsatisfying but philosophically very satisfying
1: some for some people of, yeah, for yeah, some hey, people
2: yeah. it's very satisfying <laughs> um, so you know I, but I like I like the example I was telling y'all this story the other day where when I was teaching we were going through like book one of the physics with with the students and where, where maybe, maybe it's book two I don't remember but it's where Aristotle's going through all his predecessors saying well this guy was wrong because of this and this guy was wrong because of that and I think it's Anaxagoras where he, he has this infinity of infinities and Aristotle's like well that's that's ridiculous that's I mean just think about it you know and, and all my students were like, but Dr. Sewer says that, you the, know, the math class, teacher, that there's an infinity of infinities. And so Dr. Sewer and I had a little, I mean, a very brief conversation because he was like, yeah, we're not saying that there's actually an infinity of infinities, but that mathematically it's conceptually possible. <laughs> okay.
1: When this, this is where you have to make the distinction between, are we analyzing intelligible reality? Uh, the no etat, to use Aristotle's term, or are we analyzing material reality? Uh, so if we're talking about, uh, could, could, could it be that something move infinitely fast? No. <laughs> could it be <laughs> that, uh, that there's an infinite regress of, efficient, of real efficient causes in the physical universe? No. Okay. Um, but if we're discussing and intelligibles, right? Uh, The, the pure uh, structures that we understand with our minds. uh, Well, then that's a slightly different question.
0: Right. You can measure the distance around a tree, even though it's a circle, you know, you can, you can measure motion, even though it's something that's moving through time. Yeah. So it's all interesting questions, but bringing it back to earth a little bit, (laughs) Tom, what does it mean to be a math teacher who integrates and, and doesn't separate out for the students and say, my bright ones, your STEM students and the rest of you don't matter. <laughs> Go to poetry class. How can you be hmm. a math teacher who understands the importance of forming the whole person?
3: Uh, good question. So number one, I'd want to make a distinction between the primary grammar stages and then the, the later stage uh, education, high school and above um, early on. Like uh, Dr. Dan said, uh, we want to focus on math facts teach objective truth, these things are just true. Um, My kids can see it when we teach them this at home uh, by counting M&Ms. And they can see, look, numbers are real and I get to enjoy them. (laughs) Uh, But as the students grow, we can start to integrate what they've learned about how math and the real world line up with what everything else that they've learned uh, with regard to uh, philosophy and history. And so uh, one of the best uh, questions to ask it, when we're looking at mathematics is what problem were these people trying to solve? Mm-hmm. What question does this process answer? Mm. Um, and, and that I think is the key mm. to orienting mathematical study in Western tradition in classical education. Um, and helping of,
1: the students see that it, this isn't useless. Yes,
3: right. exactly right. I mean, that's how it started. Uh, that's how math started was how, how can we describe motion? which is exactly mm-hmm. what Zeno and, and all these people were trying to right. do. Um, so, so, and then um, as far as the uh, uh, separating students, the problem there is the, basically the STEM impulse mm-hmm. that we're going to take science and mathematics and then tech and engineering, which are a derivative of them, and separate those from mm-hmm. the liberal arts. Mm-hmm. The problem with that is um, in our classical tradition, uh, these things were all integrated together and in fact, like we said, uh, Plato saw uh, math as, as uh, the entry point mm-hmm. to everything else, because the whole world is mathematical. So I think we need to reject the STEM impulse, mm-hmm. and um, and it, it, as far as we can um, keep everything integrated. And and now that's not to say now I was a physics undergrad. Mm-hmm. So that's not to say that when we get into specialization, STEM doesn't have a place. Sure. It surely does, but I think what would make the most effective um, STEM uh, of pe- people who operate in STEM vocations would be those who have an integrated background. Sure, sure. It seems like what
0: people are doing by focusing so much overly on this, on STEM when they're preparing students for STEM fields is that they're cutting, you know, cutting off their noses despite their faces in some yes. ways, that it takes creativity to excel in a STEM field. It takes problem-solving skills as much as these tactile skills that, were, that they're learning. And it takes math. virtue as well. And, and virtue, that's a good point. So what were the, the problems that they were answering? It might be a helpful exercise just to kind of illustrate what you were saying. What were sure. the problems answered when something like algebra was first developed?
3: Yeah, I'll, so the the uh, the fundamental theorem of algebra has to do with solving polynomial equations. So in, in other words- I was I'm an gonna, English major, help me out. So I'm gonna solve for X in an equation where the X variable, the variable is um, is raised to a certain degree. It could be a first degree, a linear equation, a line, second degree, quadratic, parabola, um, a curve basically, and then on and on. So how can we find the solutions to a polynomial equation? And mm-hmm. in the, in the the that's what the fundamental theorem of algebra addresses. And as far back as ancient Babylon, um, we have uh, civilizations trying to, um, uh, solve for unknowns. And, uh, it took, algebra took thousands of years to come to fruition. It really, again, it, it, it came to maturity under Descartes and the Cartesian plane, the XY plane, and, uh, coupled with his algebraic notation for much of math history. People, people talked about math problems in words, paragraphs, uh, all my students hate word problems. <laughs>
1: <Yeah>. <laughs> I, I picked up a uh, book that has a facsimile of a uh, like 16th century copy of Nicholas of Cusa's uh, *Ludus Globally at one of these bookstores over vacation, and uh, yeah, so it's written in Latin, and it's all about uh, like spherical math and spherical mechanics. And uh, yeah, exactly as you're describing, it's just straight paragraphs of words. And I, I read some of it, you know, um, which was, all, first of all, challenging just to get through the kind of paleography mm. uh, of the old way of printing Latin. Um, but y- you're right, it's it's monstrously difficult to follow wait what this number is going there and so thank god for a cartesian notation right, right. <laughs>
2: well and I, I wanted to raise the issue i will get i mean i don't want to get us off of algebra but when when we talk about oh, let those who know geometry enter mm-hmm. right is what plato expected from a, a geometrical student the same as what we expect of a student of geometry Yes. I think that's a very it's a question that maybe we don't want to get to here, but I think it's a question. No, I'd to like to get into it because what do you mean by that? Um but it it gets back to this idea that that math was taught in words, mm-hmm. right? So to go study straight Euclid right. is a very different experience, which was my yeah. experience. Maybe in high someone school. unpack
3: there's straight some, Euclid. Well, there's no numbers in Euclid's elements. Okay.
0: okay. Um, and Euclid it, being a person who wrote on geometry. Diagrams.
1: Yes. But, you can get modern editions that print helpful diagrams alongside yes. of the various theorems. But you have to remember that for hundreds of years, Euclid's elements was just statements yeah. followed by proofs so, in words.
0: So do we, do we think that when students were studying Euclid uh, that they were attempting to know those theorems like wrote or was it really uh, conceptual mastery? Do we, do we have a sense of that back at, at that time?
1: Well, so this is interesting from reading the, uh, the life of Pythagoras. Uh, so, the students of Pythagoras were divided into the Akusmatikoi and the Mathematikoi. The akousmatikoi simply heard the doctrines. Akuo means to hear in Greek, right? So, they heard the doctrines and learned to repeat them. Whereas the Mathematikoi, uh, is where we get our word math from, mathēo means to learn. So, they were the inner circle of Pythagoras' students who actually learned the doctrine, and the way Iamblichus phrases it is they learned the doctrine with a demonstration. Hmm. They learned the the logos, the, the, the ability to actually prove why that doctrine was true, why the Pythagorean theorem works, not just learn to repeat A squared plus B squared equals C squared.
0: Sure. And so, Tom, when it comes to our students who are in high school, do you think that every student should take calculus? Or what do you, what do you think um, students who are entering high school in a classical tradition, what, what's the goal?
3: Great question. Yes, I think that our classical students should take geometry and learn how to explain mathematical concepts with words. I think that all students should learn calculus. Yes, but the fundamental theorem of calculus, limits, derivatives, integrals. Um, now the question in my mind is to what extent, um, do all students need to learn this? Because, because again, um, I think that there is a, there's a degree to which all classical students need to learn math. And then there's a degree beyond that, where if I want to specialize in mathematical based Mm -hmm. science or something like that, I'm going to need to go farther. So for instance, in my undergraduate education in physics, I took, I went up through differential equations and then took a special applications class for physics. Not everyone needs to do that in order to be a well-rounded individual, right? So uh, one of the things, uh, I just finished reading um, a calculus book by Mitch Stokes called Calculus for Everyone, uh, which um, was mostly in paragraph form, which I thought was innovative and strange. Uh, but it is definitely not your normal calculus book. It uh, he What he's trying to do is orient calculus in Western tradition for classical students so that they can understand why calculus arose and what problem is solved. Now there's math problems in the book as well, but it's not your typical, maybe more STEM oriented calculus book that is just, here's what a derivative is, now solve all these problems, mm-hmm. right? And and, and and not explaining what, what, what problem the derivative solves in the real world and mathematically. Uh, so I would say that, uh, yes, we want all of our students to learn calculus. I think, um, you know, a course, something more like what, um, what Mitch Stokes has put together and what he teaches at new St. Andrews, um, maybe, maybe the, the, uh, the recipe for students who aren't, aren't interested in STEM fields as, sure. as a vocation. Um, and so, uh, so that's what I would say about
0: that. Yeah. So, Paul, speaking to people, students, we, we've said over and over that this division between, you know, word people, math people, it, is we don't like it very much. What do you, what do you say to students on a, a like a psychological level, maybe, or a, you know, a, an encouragement level for a parent who has a student or a student themselves who I, you know, they think of themselves as a word person, or maybe they've genuine struggles with processing numbers or, you know, computational difficulties. What's your encouragement to them and how would you encourage them to approach growing this well-roundedness?
2: Well, uh, first of all, I would say that up until Tom has been saying what Tom was saying, um, I had no path forward of a calculus for everybody. Mm -hmm. Right. So I would live, I I have lived more in the world. And if you've completed algebra two, you've completed geometry, pre-calculus is a very good thing, but not necessary for everybody. And so it becomes a conversation of, with the parent of like, okay, what is this, what is this child geared towards doing? You know, like, because when you get into upper high school, you are starting to think about specialization, right? right? Mm-hmm. And so, you know, there are certain essentials, uh, you know, that you that you have to, the student's going to have to accomplish because they need to be, be well-rounded. They need to be able to think quantitatively, think linguistically, you know, and and integrate the two. And so, you know, if you're trudging through Algebra 2 and you're just not getting it, well, that's where a teacher like Tom who used to be with the online academy um, you know could come alongside and help that student right or or re rephrase what's going on or explain why in the world we're even doing this right i i love it when the teachers take time to say okay i'm not digging immediately into polynomials like what what's our reason for doing this right because that motivation is key right and so, I mean, you have all sorts of different conversations of, is it the motivations? Is it the foundations? Can they just not even multiply seven times eight? Right. Um, but it, it's all within a context of this is going to be the best thing for this person's uh, human flourishing. Right. And so whether we're going to learn the discipline of hard work and determination uh, or whether we're going to be, um you know, finally turning on that that flame that they're like, "I love this now." Um, you know, that's what we would love to get everybody to. We don't get everybody there, right? But if we, but but, foundationally, you have to do it because it's going to help you be a better human being. You know, Paul, the um,
3: the most uh, popular questions that I got in class of teaching algebra for MPOA was. Uh, why do I have to know this? Or how am I going to use this in my life? And unfortunately, or, or not, uh, oftentimes the, the answer is you're not going to use this in your everyday life. <laughs> you're, mm-hmm. you're not going to everyday wake up and solve polynomials. Uh, but Says why-
1: is you. <laughs> <laughs> this
2: is Dan's daily morning uh,
3: activity. That's from the math guy, Right. Um, but this is where what uh, what I, I kind of want to push back on is the notion of education as um, as preparation for a vocation. There there is a, a point where we need to prepare for a vocation, but mm-hmm. but for the most part, and I would say through high school, we want to think about um, education as educating. Um, and so that's why I'm arguing for calculus for everyone because I would argue that calculus is a necessary component of a, a class a well-rounded
2: classical education that prepares you for any vocation. But, but, but you're, I think you're clarifying that calculus for everyone does not mean calculus A, B or calculus no, B, C for everybody. No, exactly right. And that's, and yes. that's where I haven't had a path forward to get to calculus for everybody. Yeah. Mm-hmm. You know, in order to, to as you said, what, I mean, um, derivatives and what are the integrals and limits? Yeah. Yes. Um, I'd studied calculus way back <laughs> I just let that fade out. Um, you know, uh, I think I would agree with that, but it you know, today's students and parents uh have a hard time accepting that if they are perceiving calculus as being that which I need in order to become an engineer or to become a physicist. Right. And and that you know, I I think that's where um you know it, i it I would I would Expect that if a student's coming in, it, starting Algebra two in ninth grade, when you're talking mass, like getting to that calculus for everybody, we're talking they could do Algebra two, geometry, in this calculus for everybody in three years, yes. Right? and and you know that is is very doable for a student, yes, but um, but I, I mean I have students coming in pre-algebra in freshman year, right. So
1: and it, I think it's also important to clarify that calculus for everyone doesn't mean calculus for the practical application to everyone's career, right? Right? right. Uh, there right. is a, the, the, as we've said many times there is a place for specialization and learning some of those skills that you're you're going to need for your specialized vocation and career. But there's also a place for just it's intrinsically beautiful and worth knowing. Mm-hmm. And as with all our subjects in in classics we don't learn Latin primarily to learn some skill that you're going to use as an accountant. We don't learn uh, literature so that you can have some skill that you're going to use when you grow up and become a HVAC uh, technician, right? That's, that's not our, our primary goal. We're learning these things because they're intrinsically worth learning and worth thinking about. I remember uh, when I had the light bulb moment come on for me, I had done, you know, Cartesian, plane, working on parabolas, all those basic algebra. And then I, I realized these are conic sections, right? I, somebody mm, finally mm-hmm. taught me, you know, kind of pre-Descartes, the reason that they, they were thinking about parabolas was because they were taking slices of cones. That's what a parabola is. And I was like, what? <laughs> this is 3D geometry that I've been doing this whole time, you know? And that's just Cool, like that's just elegant that that is true that there's this kind of unity to to all of these things. Another light bulb moment that I had was when I finally realized that in music, the circle of fifths in music theory and the harmonies in music theory had everything to do with. Uh, ratios and logarithmic scales and and all of these kinds of, of things. And to see, wait, uh, the, this is all a unified truth, that truth is one. And that's just cool and beautiful and worth studying for its own sake.
0: I think and you bring up the most important piece of it, and that is, it's beautiful and worth knowing. But I think even a secondary thing that I, I've thought about, I, I quipped that I'm an English, I was an English major, um, but I also took calculus. And I think one of the things that that was good for me and that I've never through life, I, I haven't used calculus, um, but <laughs> I've never really run into a system of complex numbers or computation that I haven't thought if I spend enough time on this, you know, I figured out calculus once I, I could probably figure this out too. And you know, it equips mm-hmm. the student with a kind of mm-hmm. internal equipment that allows them to face the challenges they're going to have in life. Yeah,
2: And I think mm-hmm. I, I, I like to um, poo poo uh, calculus a little <laughs> bit because my experience was when algebra came uh, easy to me I never really questioned why I was doing it it was just I could fill it out and it was great it was easy and then when I hit geometry um, I, I I studied straight Euclid with diagrams mm-hmm. and so no quantification of how many degrees this angle is or anything like that but then in that process we were being taught we were being shown geometric proofs for algebraic equations mm-hmm. we had used prior and that's when I was like oh my gosh this all makes sense And then Mm -hmm. I hit calculus and it was just, it was pure, just here's how you compute this thing. Mm -hmm. And so I never Mm -hmm. got that beautiful moment in calculus. And so, uh, you know, this whole podcast has been enlightening to me um, in several different ways, which has been wonderful. Um, But, but it is, I mean, I agree. I feel like I could figure out anything mathematically because of that experience but I really don't know what I was doing. Mm -hmm. Sure. You know? So Dr. Scheffler,
0: when Mrs. Lowe named this school that we're at here, she called it Highlands (laughs) Latin school. But when you go, I've gone back and listened to a lot of her speeches and read a lot of her things. When listening to her, she would say at the heart of classical education is Latin and math. Um, She talked about these two being, being concurrent because you know, public education hadn't totally lost math, Mm -hmm. but she felt like there needed to be something like math. Side and I've I've always thought that that, that parallel was really interesting. Mm. But when people think of Memorial Press and think of Highlands Latin School, they think about Latin, Latin, because, Latin, Latin, because
2: we were yeah. that was the fight we were fighting. But I, th- mm-hmm. I thought you missed an opportunity. Why isn't Highlands Geometry School? Well, <laughs> it should it be. It should it be Highlands Latin and Geometry? Is I, well, I
1: think it's important. So historically, you have the seven liberal arts, mm-hmm. right? And in the classical education revival movement, we really like to focus on the trivium part Mm. of the seven, the three out of the seven. But what are the, what are the other four? In fact, I think if you go to a lot of classical ed conferences and ask random people, so what are the other four uh, liberal arts? They probably couldn't tell you. Okay. But the quadrivium is, is just as important. And guess what the quadrivium is? It's all math. Okay. Music and astronomy are in there. Right. But those were understood to be mathematical sciences uh, throughout the middle ages. Right. So, you really can't lose that other side of what a classical education is. It's it's the whole picture there of the seven liberal arts. No.
3: That, is, that is exactly what I'd like to accomplish here is the reintegration of the trivium and the quadrivium. The reintegration of math with the classical liberal arts because it has been a STEM field for too long. You heard it here
0: first. All right, well, thank you guys for this conversation and we'll see you next time.
3: Thank you. Thank you.
0: Thank you for listening to today's episode of Classical Etc. If you'd like to show your support for the show, then you can leave a like below. If you'd like to add your voice to the conversation, then you can comment. And if you want to follow along with us on this journey, then please subscribe. Thanks, and I'll see you later.